Everybody knows people don't leave companies. They leave bad bosses. The Navy SEAL course has an 80% washout rate. It's hell. It's tough. But there is absolutely no shortage of people signing up for that because they want to be part of the best. Your people are everything. Leadership is everything. Every problem is a leadership problem. An executive said, hey, we're glad HR's at the table. And she flipped back and said, HR is the table. The better you get, the better you better get. Leadership combined with talent is unstoppable. George Randall is an ex-U.S. Army officer, co-founder and managing partner of The Talent War Group, and co-author of The Talent War with Mike Sorelli, another guest of our show. With a 20-year career in talent acquisition, George has hired over 80,000 people. He and Mike say that many organizations are losing the war for talent. And because of that, they are not only losing their best people, but also competitive advantage, market share, and are in danger of going out of business. They also say there is a solution, but only for those who are smart enough to listen. Hello, and welcome to the LifeWorks podcast. Joining me today is George Randall. George, what an honor to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks. It's truly my honor. And listening to that intro, I'm going, wow, okay, that is me. Then I'm old. That's that was the second thought that came to my mind. I'm like, oh my God, how do you do all of those things? He's really old. <laughs> we were at dinner last night with Mike Sorelli, and Mike Sorelli's going, We need to talk about the age factor here in the room. And I'm like, Mike, why do you always bring up age? He's 10 years younger than me, and it always comes out somehow. I'm like, Mike, he's an amazing guy to work with. And the interesting thing about Mike is, and that's the thing of the book, is we're bringing two worlds together to this unique concept. And that's how the book was born, is two people who are nerding out on talent going, hey, this works together. You know, it's not another book about Navy SEALs or special operations. It's not another book about hiring. It's combining the absolute best of two things. And it was just a stroke of genius that we got it done, I think. The concept behind the book is really brilliant, actually. You're absolutely right. It really does combine the best of, of both worlds. I've never seen a fusion quite like that. I've seen talent books. I've seen special operations books, but what a great fusion of, of two really incredible topics. When the light bulb went off with us, it, it, it's the light bulb. Hey, you've got this great idea. And then you're like, wait a minute, somebody else had to have thought of this. Us two knuckleheads cannot be the first people that thought about combining these two things. Mm. And it turns out we were and good for us. So what was the problem you were trying to solve with the book? When we combine the two things, Hiring seems to be, and, and I've read so many of the great books out there, and there's a, an, a ton of great information, ton of great data, but having been in it, and I need to back up a little bit, I fell backwards into HR. I came out of the military, went to a veteran firm, was placed at a big box retailer, which is what we talked about in the book. And I went over to consulting, but it was a family emergency that caused me to relocate from the DC metro area back to Austin. And the only job that they would transfer me to was in HR. And so I took two steps backwards. And so it was really accidental, but I'd come from the consulting side. And I remember as a consulting manager that it was like pulling teeth. to get, I, I felt like I right. just need some talent. And it was so difficult. So when I got over, my kind of my main thought was, I need to be a student of the business. 
I need to be taking things off of hiring managers' plates. They have a job to do, not mine. And I need to know their business and do it. So in all of the companies that I've been at, that's what I see is wrong, is that recruiting has been labeled overhead. It's called staffing. They are order takers. They're reactive. I love talent acquisition. I wouldn't change my function for all the money in the world. I have loved, there are those moments. You have to have a very strong masochistic gene to survive 20 years in talent acquisition, I assure you, because you're the proverbial stepchild of HR. But you're the gateway, the gatekeeper to every revenue product or service producing function. And so one of the problems, there are many problems with modern hiring or hiring in corporations, but one thing is talent acquisition has just been relegated to the back bench and we call you when we need you. Or, hey, they throw something over the fence, you got to catch and execute. And that's before we get to the errors on the business side. What are some of those errors? I'm going to work backwards. So the first problem is they don't have a talent mindset, but having a talent mindset is actually the solution. The first thing is that most companies at, at any level review their human capital and their talent gaps. Everybody does succession planning, but they don't drill in on where don't we have a real successor? Where do we have a single point of failure? Where are we not winning? Where are we not efficient? Where are we not innovating? Where are we not taking great care of our customers? They don't, they're looking on quarterly business reviews for some metric or statistic or tool or program or initiative instead of looking at the talent. And so most people don't know what they have. And then second, they don't know what they need. And when you don't know those two things, and then you compound it with a third mistake, which is If you do know you want something and you do know what you need, not knowing what success looks like in the role versus a laundry list of objective requirements, then you get fear-based hiring, butts and seats. And by the time it gets to the hiring manager, hey, you've got budget, you've got headcount, get this filled. By the time it gets to recruiting, hey, when do you need this hire? I needed them two weeks ago. It's like a snowball at the top of the hill and it just gains momentum. And by the time it hits the hiring manager and TA, you've created in many cases simply survival mechanisms that cause them to evaluate on speed and volume instead of quality. So by contrast, how would you describe the talent mindset? You, Mike and I, we stumbled upon a quote that the two of us ended up putting together. I uttered it first and Mike was like, no, you got to grab that. But it was really the two of us came together with it is you have a talent mindset when you are treating your human capital with the same rigor, focus, and discipline that you do your financial capital. Wow. It's as simple as that. When you understand that the one true competitive advantage that you can hope to achieve and maintain is your talent, and it's the one thing that has exponential returns when you invest in it, and it is the solution to every problem you have, you're on your way to having a talent mindset. What do you typically see in organizations that have a talent mindset? They're not worried about headcount. They're worried about talent. They're worried about performance. They're worried about innovation. They're worried, their big challenge is how do we unleash the potential of who we have? You have CEOs and you have leaders that are creating these visions that are getting people on board and they need that curiosity, that drive, that resiliency, all of those attributes that we talk about in the book. They're worried about getting people like that. Matter of fact, and I won't name companies, but I was on a call, an intake call with a potential client the other day. It's a venture capital backed e-vehicle company. 
won't say more than that. And we get on with the CEO and he needs an executive or two, and then he's going to ramp up. And it's one of the rare instances. And so this guy's an inventor, multiple patents. I said, so tell me what success looks like. And he goes, the, the first words out of his mouth were the last thing I look for is experience. I don't, don't care. And I was like, I'm tapping on my headset, wondering if I heard that correctly. He's, I want people with curiosity, with smarts, with drive, with resiliency, with integrity, with effective intelligence. And he goes down naming all of the attributes. I'm like, in your book. Yeah. And yeah. he hadn't read it, but another person had brought him to the table and he goes, oh, I know the book's going to resonate with the boss. A person like that, and there are other companies that I've worked at that have pockets of that in their company where they're like, if I get talent, I can teach them the industry. Now, mind you, we go, we say very strongly in the book, you're not hiring a, you know, a 22-year-old intern to be CEO of your company or CFO. You're not hiring somebody with a political science degree to do your Python coding work or front-end <laughs> development or cloud architecture. We understand that there's a minimum set of skills and competencies and experiences in most roles. The problem is that people over-index on that experience. Great way to see it. Somebody says, I need four years of coding experience. Why? Does that make them twice as good as somebody with two years? What if the person's been in the role two years but mastered it in their first year? is now picked up five other languages, but you've already self-selected out that talent by putting a number four there. So where I see it with companies, it, I've never seen it wholesale, except in very small companies, because the larger you get the dilution as you go up, sure. they pockets of it and leaders can drive it. What organizations are doing talent right in your observation? I, I think there's been a ton of them and I'm really hesitant to pull, to pick and choose because there's so many small, medium and large businesses. People will think of Google or one of the tech companies, but there's so many small to medium businesses that, that Mike and I've worked with. I don't want to name them because I don't have permission to, but they're oh. 60 to 100 people and they've gotten talent. And I have no doubt that they're going to be a billion dollar company inside of five, six years. So I, I always shy away from that a little bit simply because the people that really are getting it right tend to be small and medium businesses. The larger you get, the easier it is to take your eye off the mark. And so you see that a lot. So even in the great big companies, now, I will say I've had some experience with Google, and one of the things that I did very much like about the Google process is they have the feedback loop that we talk about. And I remember interviewing there. We couldn't agree on a position. This was years ago. Great company. We couldn't come to terms with, with what would be the next best step for me, but great company, amazing candidate experience. And the guy that grilled me was their analytics guy. And he was spending his time, and this was years ago, developing a way to look at the person they didn't pick that came in second and how their career had gone relative to the person they did pick mm -hmm. and then build a feedback loop for the person that they did pick. How could they get that iteration? How could they get that selection process even better? He was just obsessed with talent. I would have loved to have worked with a guy. I remember still to this day, probably one of the best interviews I've ever had because it seriously was nerding out on talent and really thinking about how to drive it to the next level. It was really cool. So I know where that guy's working and the team that he's on, they are nuts about talent, innovation, and creativity. 
What advice do you typically offer organizations that you work with in terms of attracting and keeping talent? What are some of those principles? First of all, it's not about the perks. We always have to take a look at compensation because if you're at the bottom of the market, you're always going to have a challenge and you have to be competitive on, on the most basic level. But I also tell them money isn't everything. What people want is what Jocko and Leif talked about in Extreme Ownership, Decentralized Command, the ultimate culture, which is people have the ability to own their function, their space, their job, and are empowered to make decisions based on the best interest of the business and the team. And when I, when we talk to leaders that we work with, we do talk about once you have people on board, talent plus leadership equals victory. And your leadership, mentorship, coaching, and training that's what people want. They want to come in and work for A players. They want to be challenged. They want to be empowered. And they want to know that this is not a walk in the park. And let me give you the why we say that and why we advise that. And we use the Navy SEALs, Mike's background as an example. The Navy SEAL or the BUDS course has an 80% washout rate. And through mm-hmm. months and months, they spend all of their time near hypothermic, wet, and covered in sand, looking like a sugar cookie. And it's hell, it's tough, but there is absolutely no shortage of people signing up for that because they want to be part of the best. And we use that example and other examples of special operations with our companies to say, top people will gravitate towards that. The best talent magnet you have is your culture and your leadership. Let's put it a different way, a very simple way. Everybody knows people don't leave companies. They leave bad bosses. Flip that on its head. If you have great bosses, people will come. You just don't hear people talking about flipping that equation, but it is that simple. Your people are everything. That's how Mike got into the Marine Corps. I'm sure he told the the story, but that's how he got in the Marine Corps is he could see excellence right in front of him. And he said, I want to be that. Talent is the very same way. They want to look at your company and they want to say, okay, I want to be a part of that. How important is the variable of leadership in this whole thing. I see that as a theme. It's the most important thing. Leadership is everything. Jocko Willink is famous, and I think it's either him or one of his great team members who said every problem is a leadership problem. It's not solved by a meeting. It's not solved by PowerPoint or Excel or another OneNote shared file or Teams or Zoom. It's a leadership problem. So leadership is everything. Provide it, even when you don't have talent or all the talent you need or the best talent, but you have people there and you have a great leader, you still can accomplish great things. It's just leadership combined with talent is unstoppable. What are some of the components of a talent strategy or a workforce planning approach? We tried to keep it simple because the principles needed to apply to everybody. And, And one of the things that I've been coaching, and I guess it's given away the secret sauce, but we're teaching people to do, if you've been in business, everybody's done a quarterly business review, the dreaded QBR or death by PowerPoint, where you go into a meeting. I was in a quarterly business review one time and I'm sitting next to my evil twin, who's the VP of HR, Karen Clark, who's like the standard bear for what HR should look like. She's the most amazing person on the planet, my best friend. And I wrote DNR on the back of my badge in black Sharpie for do not resuscitate. So if this PowerPoint kills me, don't revive me. But I share that because nobody does a human capital business review. And so we try to keep it simple. Instead of, we talk about workforce planning, we talk about talent planning. It starts with evaluating bottom to top, 
top to bottom, the talent gaps, the lack of succession, flight risks, people who are ready for the next step, people who need investment. And a lot of companies are doing that, but they're not doing it as well. They don't have the talent mindset behind it. So it starts with your leaders and HR. I was going to say HR being at the table, but I remember we put the quote in there from Tracy Keogh in the book when an executive said, hey, we're glad HR's at the table. And she flipped back and said, HR is the table. And I still love that. But having HR as a strategic partner to figure out what your talent strategy is going to be. Just because you have money, just because you have some attrition, does not mean that you need to go out and bring humans into the business. You go to market with your sales, you go to market with your product, you go to market with your service, and you create a plan for that. But rarely, if ever, does anybody plan to go to market with talent. So that's basically what you need to start doing. Whatever form you do it in, the reason we kept it simple is because special operations didn't become special overnight. There's half a century there of iteration and getting better and better and never being satisfied. We have a phrase here on the Overwatch team is the better you get, the better you better get. And so we tell people whatever mechanism you can put in place to evaluate that talent and look at your gaps and begin your hiring planning and tell each department leader, this is what's missing or this is what would be additive or more powerful, more horsepower to your team then you can start defining what success would look like in that role that you've created. And then you can come, while you're doing that with talent acquisition, then you can go out to market because you're now looking at attributes and minimum requirements and people will be more attracted to that. So 80,000 hires over the course of your career. You've read a lot of resumes. I have. I've gone blind doing so, yes. <laughs> yeah, just quite a few. Done quite a few. You figure it starts with the resumes, then it pairs down to interviews, and then it pairs down to hires. So it's it's probably 10 times. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> or more, Yeah, right? Yeah, it, it's interesting to look back. But where the bulk of those came from is I stumbled onto the good fortune of working with Mitch Schwartz, Caroline Atherton, Gemma Johns, and Tracy Keogh at HP, and Don Robertson, Tom Lokar, and a bunch of others, Dave Medrano, and was thrust into a position where, you know, inside of two and a half years, I was leading all of the recruiting for a 125,000 person organization. And they had a voracious appetite for hiring. The benefit of that job combined with all of my experience was I got to work with workforce planning, people like Manish Asnani, who's now the, I think, CHRO of Visa. Amazing guy, genius, great leader, great person to work with, and great HR leaders, great business leaders in 90 countries. So it was throw myself in the deep end and swim as fast and as hard as I can. So how do you read a resume? Like, how do you get the story? How do you extract the, the value from that? And the reason why I ask is because the, the audience for this podcast tend to be more senior people. So these are the hiring managers. They're looking yeah. at, at resumes too, but you have an astute eye for resumes. How do you, 80,000 hires later, how do you look at a resume and extract the, 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 the essence of that person? I select a lot out very easily, and it seems like it would go against the book. And all of my functions, when I get lines and lines on a resume of what somebody was responsible for, 
it concerns me immediately because you didn't tell me whether you ran that organization into the ground or set records. You're making me assume. So telling me the scope of your responsibility, you only have to give me about five words for that. The next thing that I'm looking for is the one thing that translates from business to business to business is results. I'm looking for achievement. And the more achievement that I see, I'm not worried about the impact. I'm not worried about the context. I'm worried that somebody has a business mindset and drive and understands their results to be delivered, whatever your function, and that they know how to articulate how they impact an organization. Now, the context the degree of difficulty, the situation, the resources, the climate, the timeline that they had in those achievements, I'm going to bring that out in the interview, the how they did it. And when I see those achievements, I know I'm going to have an opportunity to go after, tell me how you failed on the way of achieving that. Or you achieved a great thing. What did you, if you had to do that all over again, what would you learn? So I'm really looking for quantifiable achievements because any movement of the needle translates. And so I don't look at a resume and say, okay, I'm at company X, my competitor is Y. I don't want to see the company. I frankly don't care. The company and the title are some of the last things that I look at. I'm looking for the achievements. I'm looking for a set of competencies. A lot of people do functional resumes, so I'll see competencies up front, but I want to see achievement. I want to see drive. Those people who never settle are the things that I'm looking for. How do you get that out of a resume? Like, how do you look for the character traits? Or can you see the character traits in a resume? You can see indications thereof. And so at the number of resumes that I'm going through, I know what the success factors are in a role. And I'm going to look for relatable accomplishments, but I'm going to look for significant accomplishments. And where hiring managers generally go wrong is they're looking at like companies and titles first. Had they done this role previously, are they bringing that level of experience? And I'm like, it seriously drives me nuts with hiring managers. And I now being a VP, I will verbally set them straight, but shake them from limb to limb. The competitors don't matter. The titles don't matter. They're never equivalent from one company to the next. And, but if you can see achievement, And if you can see innovation or I invented, I created, achieved, all of those action verbs in there with numbers, with metrics, those things matter. You're on to something there. Do you know that you have talent? Not necessarily, but you have great indications that what they value is getting better and making a difference. And that is probably a great place to start if you're swimming in resumes. Do you prefer one type of resume over another? It depends. Now, this is going to sound very ageist. So when I teach veterans, there's generally two types, functional, chronological. And they teach veterans chronological. And I tell them, if you've been in five to seven years, chronological is fine. If you have a 20-year career like I do, no, you need a functional because it needs to be more broad-based. Somebody needs to be able to look at it and see relatability to what they're trying to achieve. And a functional resume will show that much, much better. They can put competencies, a simple summary. There's things that I don't like and I tell people to take off. Don't put an objective statement on a resume ever. I, I, I don't care what you want. I figure if you applied to our company, you're interested in the role. So if you want to put an objection statement on the top line, by all means do. But yeah, I want to, 
I, I don't go necessarily on keywords. I'm, I have not used AI. I pay very close attention to looking for the things that are relatable to the success factors of the role, especially in executive positions. Executive resumes are, are, you would be amazed at how much content is there for how much they were responsible for versus what they achieved. Executive resumes tend to either be over-rotating on numbers or under-rotating. There's not a lot of middle good ground. and not entirely sure why that is, but anyway, when I interview executives, I don't even look at the resume. I never do. What do you look at? Them. And it's so interesting. I was having this conversation with Tom Lokar. He says, you've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of executives. Do you ever look at the resume? I said, rarely. He says, you've got to be kidding me. You're selecting. I said, no, I'm not selecting. Any executive that comes into a firm is going to go across the C-suite for interviews. I don't have to worry about the experience piece. I don't have to worry about the qualifications piece. What I have to worry about are the success factors and the behaviors, because I know the ecosystem I know what team they're going to be leading. I know that because I'm a student of the business, I know the challenges of that team. I know the other executives that they're going to have to interact with and collaborate with. So I have in my mind a good idea of the behaviors that I should be seeing in this person. And any executive that comes in for an interview, you'll get one out of five that you're wondering why they're there. But generally speaking, they're all well qualified and have the experience and the institutional or industry or functional knowledge that qualifies them to be there that you should consider them. So I'm simply going into behaviors. Right. How do you assess for behaviors in an interview or character traits in an interview? What, like, what kind of questions would you ask in order to assess some of the traits that you talk about in the book, like drive and resiliency and, and humility and things like that? With executives, I back up a little bit. So if we're, the general population versus an executive interview is a little bit different. The executive interview, and I don't necessarily give away my secret sauce as to how I do it, but it's Either it's a ton of fun or it is the most brutal process on the world. Takes me 30 minutes. The first thing I want to establish with an executive through my questions is I want to see immediately introspection and authenticity. Hmm. Those are the first two things I need to see. If I see introspection, then they know they're likely going to know the how and the behaviors behind their successes. And then I'm going to have a good interview. And when I when the authenticity isn't there then I know immediately something's missing. I know to dig a different direction. I, I need to figure out, but I try, I try to make everybody very comfortable, very conversational in the interview, but I will, I generally, because the length of an interview, I will look for the top three traits that are needed for that particular role. If it's sales, obviously drive and resilience are the are top two. Right. Right. So I've got to design questions that are going to elicit things that tell me their level of drive. And having done this for 20 plus years, I, it's, hard to, it's hard to share with people that after you've seen this a thousand times, you know what drive looks like, but you can ask questions. The other questions that I throw in there for anybody that's a people leader, and I don't even know anybody else that does it, frankly. I ask questions about integrity. People just assume that one, but it's a black and white one. And so there's nothing like putting a candidate on the spot and say, I'd like for you to share with me the time where it was hardest for you to tell the truth, knowing that the ramifications on you or your career may have been negative, where you had to hold the line on integrity. Wow. Wow. You will see people's heads spin off the axis. It's a tough question. 
And people don't ask it. And I ask it of sales leaders, especially, and you watch them. That's why I'm hoping they're authentic because they may get rambling in the interview a little bit, but I'll know from the substance and some of the critical parts that I'm listening for, if they're on track with integrity, or I'll start to see that situational ethics come through. And the things that most people, when given the hard choice for integrity, when it had negative ramifications, will justify another explanation. And here's two things that it does. Number one, it gives me insight into the integrity. And number two, it puts it right in their face that integrity is non-negotiable at our company. So if they have any problems with it, they just figured out in the interview, somebody's watching and we care. So it's a good marker to lay down as far as your company's standards to be asking about integrity right because nobody asks about it but somebody coming into your company knowing that integrity and honesty and authenticity is valued there you go you're off to a pretty good start with characteristics this is an entirely different level of talent acquisition yeah generally the executives that i interview oh my god and it's so when i throw i have five or six questions that I do, and they are completely unrelated to the resume. They're all prepared to come in and talk about, let me put it to you a different way. One of the ways that I teach veterans and one of the lines of our senior leaders that we place is I tell them simply, no one cares how much you know about the company. They care how much you know about yourself. Have you taken a personal inventory of your subjective and objective traits? Do you know the how behind your accomplishments? Do you know how to articulate in an impactful way how you lead? So when I'm interviewing, and and generally when I'm interviewing executives, it's VP and senior vice president or C-suite, but also director, senior director as well. And I know that's hard because those titles vary from company to company in size. That said, I don't care how much they know about us. And I don't really care... In my behavioral questions, I'll find the how behind everything on the resume without even having looked at it. Because if you think about it, in its most simple terms, what are you hiring? The resume or the person? I need to know the person that I'm getting. And if I've got, and I didn't even know, frankly, that I was doing it the way that special operations was doing it. But I tried in my career to become an expert in potential-based hiring and special operations had to do that. Nobody comes to special operations with experience. I'm sure Mike's hammered that home. So when I'm looking at executives, it's the potential to carry our company forward. Additionally, and this is what I would tell hiring managers, especially senior leaders, take 50 of your people and ask them this simple question. From when you were hired to the end of the first year, at the end of the first year, if you had to rewrite your job description, would it be the same as the one you signed up for? And out of the 50, you might get two or three. In this day and age, our job, Every one of us, the job I signed up for as VP of talent acquisition at the end of the first year was dramatically different because the company evolves, the company moves forward, departments move forward, people move forward, roles expand, roles contract, departments fragment and and grow separately. All the roles change. So as a hiring manager, once you get past the minimum requirements, that gate should close and it should be all about the attributes and the potential of the person in front of you to do multiple things and to be ready to grow and be curious and driven enough to grow for the roles of the future. So I want to do something a little bit different, a little bit of an experiment. 
and I call it speed round. I'm going to read you a name. It could be a name of a company, it could be a name of a person, and just want you to share the first word that comes to mind. That you Sounds do. good. <laughs> it won't be very HR-like. I'm pretty much going to guarantee you that, so let's go. No, no worries. Okay. Kodak. Mini cameras on trips. Blockbuster. DVDs on a shelf. Outdated. Old. My kids don't know them. That's probably the thing to say. My kids don't even know them anymore. Blackberry. Crack addict. I grew up with a Blackberry. I was a Crackberry addict in consulting, so I get it. Blackberry, but yeah. IBM. White shirts. HP. My career enabler. They were a gift. Tracy Keough and all the people I worked with, even though it was hard, they were a real gift to my career, and I owe them so very much. I was grateful to come to that company and then work with Meg Whitman, Tracy Keough, and and Don Robertson, Tom R., Caroline Atherton. I loved them all. And Not it, all the time. <laughs> Sometimes they were a real pain in the ass, but they did so much for me, and I owe them a great debt. And a, f- a fun fact for our listeners and viewers is that George and I actually crossed over at HP for several years at, at the same time. So just a, yeah. a, a fun fact for everybody. It's crazy. Big yeah. place. Yeah, it is. Netflix. Powerful. That's Patty McCord's book, and I got to meet Patty McCord, and it's an absolute must-read for people out there on talent. Patty McCord was the chief talent officer at Netflix, helped build the culture deck, and she wrote the book Powerful, an amazing book. Pfizer. Viagra. Apple. My kids. So I went from Crackberry to I joined HP, and at the time, HP and Apple are competitors, and I could only carry a Samsung. And I listened to my family dog me out for you dad you need to get an iphone we can't message you the same way like it's not entertainment it's my livelihood for goodness sakes i don't care what i carry as long as i can thumb flick that thing and get through my email and (laughs) i now have the 12 max so i've got my kids to be quiet yeah tesla my wife one upsmanship oh yeah oh there's this sorry this is turning into be more fun than i thought because my kids are off the payroll. I finally got my toy. And it was a COVID price 2016 black, gorgeous Cayenne Turbo. Wow. Porsche. I got a COVID price. It's certified. I don't buy brand new cars. I had always wanted something like this. I had always run the wheels off of every car and I bought it. And I've, and this thing is just amazing. And I'm loving it. 50-some years old, I finally get my toy. My wife comes home the next day with a 2020 Tesla SUV in black, ceramic coated. Could you just not get in the way of the spotlight? I want to have my fun car. And so she's, I'll race you. I'm like, I'm not racing an electric car with a Porsche. So, yeah. Oh, my wife is a hot rod. When she got her toy, when she was running her consulting business, with her car came two tickets to the Mercedes Racing Course in Fort Lauderdale. Yes. Yeah, so I have a wife that instructs me on the finer points of driving. So I say that both to be proud of my wife and to elicit great deals of sympathy for me, too. That was awesome. I love that. Love that response. Amazon. Uh, lifesaver. COVID came around and... You're restricted or quarantined. Amazon comes through. Disney. Wallet. That's so true. (laughs) I remember I took my kids there and I remember meeting Mickey at the front gates. I just took my wallet out and gave it to him. I thought I might as well give up as I come in the gate. But that said, here's a shout out to Disney. I took the kids on a Disney cruise. Now, my kids, my daughter has given us a grandson. 
uh, my son's in, he's a mechanical engineer. My stepson, he's doing great things. And my daughter-in-law and our other grandson, they're doing great. But I took them on a Disney cruise. Awesome. I had no earth. I thought the military had their collective stuff together. Disney's got that stuff locked down. The United States okay. military logistics chain could learn a lot from Disney. I was impressed. They are so good. Absolutely. And fu funny enough, in 2019, actually, before COVID, I, I, I did the same. I actually took my family on a Disney cruise. And you're absolutely right. My gosh, do they have logistics figured out? I'm like, right. I'll do that again. Oh, and the best part? There's the adult section and you're out of cell range. I was drinking Bailey's for breakfast, Bailey's for lunch, and I don't know what for dinner. Uh, because my kids, when you would go get them, didn't want to come out. I was like, how are you did that? Teach me. That was genius. And yeah. hats off to them. That was probably one of the better experiences with kids I've ever had. And it, it wouldn't have been possible with all the talent, without the talented people that they've hired into that company. Indeed. U.S. Army my heart. The U.S. military is the world's greatest leadership incubator, and I would not be enjoying the successes if I hadn't had the just unbelievable gift of great soldiers, great non-commissioned officers and officers that, despite my best efforts of ego to drive them away, invested in me to be a great leader. So I want to take a step back. That was a lot of fun, by the way. I, I, I loved it. And, and just mm -hmm. to ask you some general advice and lessons sure. learned. If you could share one secret of your success, what would that be? Perseverance. I remember talking with Tracy at HP, and she provided an insight that should have come normal, I think, to most people. But she said, climbing the career ladder is more akin to a climbing wall than it is a career ladder. I mean, most people will tell you sideways, up, down, all of that. But she said, no, a climbing wall. You don't know where you're going to grip next to get to where you want to go. And so I think perseverance and understanding that you're capable of more, life isn't fair, and there are going to be some unexpected twists and turns. But perseverance ultimately is what's going to get you through those things. What's the most important lesson that you've learned either in life or in business? This is going to sound different coming from me. I got it from my father and my father never let us kids go to bed despite the things that we did without telling us he loved us. So he told me, he said, if you want to be a success, he now this is, he's got his own twist to it. And he said, be a good son, be a good father, be a good friend, good servant of God and a loyal Kansas City Chiefs fan. And that will <laughs> define success. Now, he was saying that well before the Patrick Mahomes days. I want to be clear about that when we were in the doldrums of 1 in 15. But, and, and then he went on to say, and this is how you're fathering getting older, mm. is he said to me, you know what? The sun always rises in the east, and how you greet that day is everything. So I pass that along to my son. Yeah. Honors mechanical engineering scholarship. I said, son, because he was feeling depressed one day about the job search. And I said, son, the sun rises in the east. It's how you greet the day. And I thought I was sharing the wisdom from my father. And I didn't realize the sarcastic gene in my son had morphed significantly. And he said, dad, everybody and their brother knows the sun doesn't rise. The earth revolves around the sun. What's your <laughs> point? I was like, trying to be a good dad. And God love that kid. He's so smart, too smart for his own good. But yeah, tell people that you love them. Tell people that you appreciate them and the sun's going to come up the next day, whether you want it to or not. And so how you greet it is everything. If you could offer one piece of advice to the world, what would that be? 
be quiet. In today's information age and electronic age, I think we've lost the ability to be quiet and listen, whether that's to our fellow human beings or to tune out the distractions of the world. And and it's not just your phone. It might be traffic. It might be music. But there's always something humming in your ears. And the only thing I really would like humming in my ears on any given day would be the sound of water hitting a beach. (laughs) That would be it. But other than that, if I were to give a piece of advice, it would find some time to be quiet. Let your mind, let your body, let the world settle. And just be still for a while. Soak it all in. It's a pretty miraculous thing that anybody's here and doing what they're doing. And I say that in addition to, it would be two pieces. It would be quiet and then be grateful. Mike and I have worked with a lot of people who gave the last measure of their lives and everything they had for people to have freedom around the world. And we don't take that for granted. And that's some of the reason we do what we do. But just be grateful everybody's got something going on in their world that's hard, some devastating facing diseases and other things. Just be grateful. You're breathing. You're good. Keep going. That's sage advice. Couldn't get better than that. Be quiet. Be grateful. Love it. What do you want most for your life? I say this to myself every once in a while. I think it's an abundance of joy. And I've got to take my own advice and learn to be quiet more. And I think I've learned it. They say you get older, you get more wise as you get older. That may or may not be true in my case. And please don't put my wife on a podcast. She will absolutely refute that point that I'm not getting wiser. But I think it really, I would give people the example it came really clear to me in the blink of an eye when, you know, my daughter called me to tell me she was going into labor. And that's my baby girl who's still 12 that I'm pulling in a wagon. Life goes by in a flash, an absolute flash. And you look back and you go, holy crap, how fast did this go by? And I think being quiet, being grateful, and then just looking for the own joy in the moment because we're so busy, so many things pass us by and we all could use a little bit more of that. I know that's a little bit softer snowflake side of me, but it's absolutely true. You've got to have joy in what you do. No, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Thank you. So I want to just open it up for you. Are there any other final thoughts that you want to share with our audience about anything that we've talked about or anything that we haven't talked about? When it comes to the book, yeah, Mike and I, are work, we're going to work on our second For people in business to understand what we understand intrinsically in the military, which is what we do in the military is an ecosystem. Special operations is not special if they don't have logisticians, if they don't have medics, if they don't have uh, mechanics, if they aren't A players doing their job, special operations cannot go be special. In business, and we found this and talked about it in the book, HR is usually relegated to overhead or compliance, but every part of your business, whether it's sales or C-suite leadership or product or service or innovation, human resources, finance, legal, it's all an ecosystem and you need A players in every spot. You can't take your eye off the ball of talent for a second. Pick one of those. Let's say, let's just say, take your eye off the ball in legal. See where that gets you. Take your eye off the ball in finance. See where that gets you. Take your eye off the ball in HR. You're back to legal again very quickly. In product, you're not innovating. You become Kodak, BlackBerry. You take your eye off sales and integrity. You're Enron. It's an ecosystem. And we learn that in the military. 
And as a leader, you have a responsibility to pull that ecosystem together and get it working more synergistically and more efficiently at every opportunity that you can have. It's a fantastic way to to finish our interview. George, what a pleasure. What a wow interview that has been. You've you well, shared thank you. incredible insights. It's here very early on a Saturday morning, and it's been such an honor to be able to greet the sun together. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Today. I'm going to tell my son, make him listen to that. The sun did rise this morning. I watched it. So, so thank you for allowing me the, the pleasure and the honor of spending this time together. And I look forward to following you in the future and, and seeing all the great things you're doing. And, and one day soon, we're, we're going to have you back on for, for your you know, next book. So <laughs> I would love it. It's Mike pops up. I got the title of our next book. I'm like, <laughs> and he tells me what it is. And I'm like, oh, he's right. Here we go. We're, we're going to go ride again. And, and I love that about him. We have a phrase and I'm going to put it out to see this. The phrase with Mike is he doesn't let the cement dry. He moves so fast and is so driven and I love him for it, but it's great. So thank you. The, the honor and the privileges for Mike and I, that people are paying attention to this book. We think it, it makes a difference because it's all about people, whether it's special operations or your business. The most powerful force in the world is the U.S. economy. And this little podcast is going to help us make that even stronger. Absolutely. Absolutely. George, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Hope you have a great weekend. Go Chiefs. Hey guys, thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this video, click the subscribe button to get the latest content and check out these other great clips from the podcast.